our first of the last two is from Dr. David Thomas, who's Chief of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins, has uh, really been involved in hepatitis C research since the early to mid-90s and uh, has watched us evolve from three times a week interferon to PEG interferon to what is now the uh, sort of promised land of direct acting agents. And so he's going to give us uh, new insights into hep C management. Thanks a lot, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks to all of you for staying for the, uh, the hepatitis talk. I appreciate that. Um, where is my disclosure? Okay, so we're going to cover the gamut of hepatitis C management, beginning with staging for disease and then going through treatment, which is increasingly uh, about treating special populations because the standard treatments are fairly straightforward. You can look them up on the, on the web at the guidance site. Um, and so we're going to talk in a little bit of detail about the special populations, really beginning with HIV co-infection. Um, and as we go through, we'll talk about the uh, take-home points being the key drug interactions, being to recognize the key drug interactions that might affect your choice of uh, how you treat your HIV co-infected individuals, and then um, we'll compare the treatment of persons with and without cirrhosis and with and without a renal disease. So we kind of get a sense of, okay, if you leave this lecture knowing what to do different in your cirrhotic, what to do different in your patient with renal disease, then we'll have, we'll have gotten, done our job. So let's start out with a case, like a lot of people. Let's start out with this case of a hepatologist, an infectious disease doc doctor, a primary care provider, and an insurance executive who went to a bar <laughs> to talk about whether a 58-year-old had a HIV-infected woman uh, with well-controlled HIV had cirrhosis. So that was the topic of discussion, and you get to decide which was right. The hepatologist. Uh, says uh, she can't have cirrhosis because I did a biopsy two years ago and it was F2 disease. The infectious disease doctor says, no, no, that's not true. Uh, she has to have cirrhosis because I did an elastography and her score was 12.5 kilopascals. The primary care practitioner uh, says she probably has cirrhosis because her, probably has cirrhosis because her FIB4 is 5.2 and she's HIV positive. And the insurance executive says it doesn't really matter anyway because she can't have the medicines. <laughs> so this case brings us in. You don't have to vote. Actually, we should have voted. <laughs> this is meant to just get us into this topic of staging. And you know, if, you've, if you've been around for a while and you've heard some hepatitis staging talks and maybe even read some papers and, and you, you feel a little bit confused, you're right. You, you've been paying attention. You should be a little bit confused. Uh, hepatitis C staging is an inexact science. It is uh, an, uh, a, a matter of, uh, there's two objectives for it right now. One is to get your drugs approved for your patient. And the other one is to rule out, to rule out cirrhosis, because as we're going to talk about a little bit later, people with cirrhosis get treated a bit differently. So we want to make sure we don't accidentally miss someone with cirrhosis and fail to treat them in a special way, and we want to get the drugs approved. So those are the goals, and with that in mind, um, let's look at a couple of the sort of do's and don'ts and the caveats of, of how to do staging. 
So one point is that there are three tests that are approved, okay? So there's the liver biopsy, which nobody likes, no one wants to do, and has a lot of limitations, uh, but is a, an approved test. There's the blood tests that uh, include the, some of the, each one of the major labs has their own uh, patented version of them, uh, and then you can calculate them, as we'll talk about in a second. You can come up with your own algorithm, uh, or, or you can use a, a little hand-tag calculator and come up with your own blood test for fibrosis. And then there's the elastography, which is like an ultrasound-based, uh, very quick, painless way to assess um, fibrosis. And those are all approved. The guidance makes all of those equal uh, for detecting uh, uh, cirrhosis. And in some instances, uh, the, the insurance companies vary with which ones they'll approve for, um, for the drug approval process. So beginning with the elastography, this was a very early study done. So this is transient elastography, very, like I said, quick, safe, painless test. Um, it, it's done in a couple minutes. And, and you can see in, the, in these data that when you're asking the question of can you find someone that had cirrhosis on their liver biopsy, the question is with a lower cutoff, in this case 11.8, you can have very high sensitivity for detection of cirrhosis. Move the cutoff higher, of course you lose, um, uh, you lose some of your sensitivity up here, so I, my box moved, uh, at, but you gain some specificity with that trade-off. So um, uh, this is a study of HIV, HCV co-infected uh, individuals. There's been scores of other uh, papers more or less showing the same thing. This test is actually the most accurate, the most valid test um, that can be routinely done for detection of cirrhosis. MRE, so uh, magnetic resonant elastography, is better, but it costs $2,000 and it's not routinely available. But if you want something that's quick and convenient, you can put these in your clinic and People can literally go on their while they're waiting for you and have them done, and then you see them in the office and you already have their staging uh, sorted out. So it's a, it really is a very useful test um, for detecting and for especially for ruling out cirrhosis. People who have very low results in this will not have cirrhosis. The other thing that the elastography gives you, which is kind of nice, is it doesn't just say do you have cirrhosis or not, but it gives you a quantitative sort of index of how bad the cirrhosis is. So if you, if you look at the gold standard for portal hypertension, the hepatovenous pressure gradient here on the um, x-axis, and the elastography score here, you can see that if you have an elastography of 35, okay, that's cirrhotic, but that's worse. You can have higher portal hypertension than if you have a 15, which is also cirrhotic, but is going to be associated with lower portal pressures, lower incidences of liver cancer, lower incidences of decompensation, variceal bleeding, all the things that go with portal hypertension. So it, it's really a nice test. It gives you um, information uh, on excluding cirrhosis and information about how bad cirrhosis is once you have it. What about the blood tests? I'm going to show the Fib4 just to, because I don't have time to go through all the, the different ones, but they're, they're very similar. The concordance between this and the, um, this is a free test that is the age of the patient multiplied by the AST divided by the platelet count and also divided by the square root of the ALT. If it weren't for the square root of the ALT, you could do it all in your head, but it, it ends up that just 
And there's always one person that can do that in the room. Um, but, but most people just get their little handheld thing out or have it open in Google when they're, um, or on the internet when they're in clinic and just calculate it really quickly. It's free, you have it on every patient for free all the time because those are, everyone has ASTs, ALTs, and platelet counts. So if you look at that test and you compare the, that to liver biopsy and you include F3 and F4 together as being the cirrhosis or pre-cirrhosis state, then you can see that the test is um, most of the time in people with cirrhosis, a, um, they won't have a very low FIB4. But interestingly, uh, if you said, well, the person has a FIB4 of less than three, they can't have cirrhosis, you'd be wrong, you would have missed 20% of your cirrhotics in this study. So it's actually good when it's very low, but it's not so, it's not fantastic in its sensitivity. So you might say, why did you waste a whole slide and, and two minutes of my time telling me about it then? Because you can't do any better with any of the other blood tests that cost $200. They, you can't. So, so they're n none of them are all that good, and where they're best is when they're really low, because when they're really low, they do have high sensitivity for ruling out cirrhosis. A really low result will rarely, very rarely ever uh, be found in a person with cirrhosis. The problem is oftentimes you end up with some ambiguity in the middle. So I could show you another 15, 20 minutes of this kind of stuff, and you'd still end up, I think, in the same spot, which is that you, what you ideally will do is combine a couple of these, like if you can get elastography, you'll get that, and then you'll calculate your own FIB4, and you'll have a decent idea of the, whether or not the person has cirrhosis, knowing that they're not perfect. So with regard to staging, uh, first of all, you stage for these purposes, to, to rule out cirrhosis, to get approvals. So that you can use any of the tests, but blood tests and elastography can often be combined, which is a useful, practical way of doing it. And when you do so, you can achieve a fairly high sensitivity. Always default to the higher of the two. Uh, like if one says it's F4 and the other one says it's F2, generally you can think of the F4 as being the one to go with because it's more conservative and not just because of that but also because there are data that was presented a couple weeks ago at EASL where people who had discrepant, who had um, decompensation or liver cancer, it was because the discrepant one, there was a discrepancy and the higher one was right. So there are actual clinical outcome data to support that practice of defaulting to the higher stage. And then finally, you can use various forms of elastography, um, not just the, um, the uh, fiber, what's called marketed as a fibro scan, but you can also order ones that are uh, based on other different ways of looking at sound waves, where you can also get ultrasound combined, and that's very useful for when you already have a cirrhotic for getting uh, pathocellular carcinoma screening. And the final point is if you do go to a bar to discuss something like this, always let the business executive pay the bill at the end. <laughs> I was shocked at this. Anyway, okay, so now we're going to shift. I timed that really wrong. I meant to say it first and then share the slide, but I, sorry. Um, all right, so let's switch to a uh, transition with the case. Uh, your patients on Elvitegravir, Cobacistat, and Tracidabine, Tenofovir, uh, and presents for initial treatment of 1B, 
hepatitis C infection, has low stage disease. She has a GFR of 32, and now you get to pick which of these options, and you can really vote for this one. Will you pick uh, that she should be treated with Elbasvir or Grisopavir, with Sofosbuvir, Valpatasvir, and Voxilaprovir, with soft lead, with GP, or change the antiretroviral therapy? We're entering into the drug interaction section of this talk, if you haven't otherwise discerned. Okay, great, let's see what we did here. Changing the antiretrovirals, right, because a lot of you, even ones who have never written a hepatitis C prescription and never mean to, would have changed this person's antiretroviral therapy anyway, right, because they had a GFR that was low and were still on uh, regular tenofovir. Um, but there's also drug interaction issues that we're going to go over. So that, that, that was sort of one of the main points, but as you'll see, we'll also um, as I go on, I'm going to make a couple other points about the, the hep C drugs that not only would be safe to use in, in, with various HIV meds, but then we're also going to talk about the renal insufficiency, okay? So I'm, I'm answering in a sort of a glib, quick way, but I'm going to break that down as I go through. If you haven't before and you want to treat hepatitis C, you need to know about this site. It's the hep C guidance. It's very easy to Google. It's the first thing that comes up. And when you click on it, you get this nice format where you can go up and scroll over, and you can come right down to whatever population you want to, do, to deal with if you have a unique population. If you're doing the bread and butter, you just come over to one of these columns and get your answer there. So here, we're going to click on co-infection, and when we do, we're going to learn that there's really no difference. That maybe we shouldn't even have that little drop down anymore. People have said that before, because there's really no difference except the one thing that's a little bit different is there's no endorsement of the abbreviated treatment for ledipastir sofosbuvir for eight weeks, which can be done in people with, with women, especially with viral loads under 6 million. So if you're a real aficionado and you know about that exception in the regular treatment, that exception doesn't exist. But otherwise, there's absolutely no differences. You treat hepatitis C, HIV, co-infected people the exact same way as those with just hepatitis C. So it all comes down then to the drug interactions. And if you keep scrolling down on that page, you'll see a nice table that looks a little bit like this, only I've kind of moved some things around to make it so I could show it, where you see the uh, HIV drugs, I'm sorry, the hep C drugs on the top and the HIV combinations on the side. And if it's green, it's good. And if it's red, it's bad, and yellow's in the middle. And so you can see that when you, you get into the integrase inhibitor family, everything is, is nice and green. It's only when you add some boosting that you start to get red and red and sometimes yellow. And that's why previously we made the point when we were, when, when Mike asked me what would I do about that HIV regimen, I like those that don't have boosting when I know I'm going to need to treat hep C because what if that insurance company makes me use something in this category that requires a change of antiretroviral um, 
if uh, I have to use that for the hep C drugs. The other point I'll make here is I've added the nukes here, tenofovir-based uh, nuke treatment, because sometimes you get into issues with uh, whatever boosts um, tenofovir levels uh, can uh, doubly boost them when they're on certain uh, hep C meds that also boost the tenofovir levels. So that's another sensitivity. But the main reason for showing this is just to see that life is green with integrase inhibitors. And you can, if you remember that, then you can really get pretty far along. Um, and that's also true for lopilverine. So um, now, when we leave that family and we move into the boosted world and things that are protease inhibitors, we get a lot more uh, problems. With the sole exception of the efavirenz, probably because it was around and so many people were on it in the beginning when the first study was done with lead soft, it, it actually had no uh, clinical problems at all in that study. So that's still green, but everything else is, has got issues. So if, you want, if you're a lumper and you don't want to have to look every time you see a patient, if they're on an integrase inhibitor, you're more or less clear without boosting. You don't have to look anything up. Um, and, and that's a fairly good rule of thumb. Okay, so co-infection, no differences, just the drug interactions, and you can look them up um, uh, and sometimes make a change. Secondly, I want to go into cirrhosis. And in the, in the guidance, it's decompensated first uh, and, and, and dealt separately in each individual section with regular cirrhosis, but I'm going to kind of include them for this talk. So we'll talk about generally about the management of individuals with cirrhosis. So first of all, when I mean cirrhosis, I mean F3 and F4. And that's because when you do any kind of studies about clinical outcomes, people with F3 also can get liver cancer, also can get decompensation. And that's not because there's anything super mysterious going on in the liver. It's just because we're not very good at staging. And so F3 can actually be F4 and, and, and vice versa. So that's why uh, you, you lump and that's why you round up. Second point is that uh, w with all of the differences, the, the one interesting thing is the use of GP, Gocuprovir preventospear, is always 12 weeks with cirrhosis. You can just look it up, don't remember that, but it's never eight weeks um, with cirrhosis, and that just makes it easy to remember, whereas it's generally eight weeks outside of cirrhosis. Point number three, uh, and the main reason we do the staging is, for medical reasons, is that you have to do a hepatocellular carcinoma um, screening uh, and look for varices in the cirrhotic population. Okay, so HCC screening every six months and uh, varices uh, screening once by upper GI. And that's, that, once, uh, once again, is the chief reason that staging is done so that you can detect liver cancer. This should be done before you start treatment. This should be done before you start treatment. And, and it's complicated why, but the main reason is if your patient has liver cancer, it's best if they're not already on hep C treatment. Because sometimes that changes the dynamic. If they have liver cancer, they need a new liver in, in many instances. And getting a new liver in most parts of the country is much more difficult if you don't have hep C than if you do. So it's better to allow them to still have their hep C, get a new liver, cure the cancer, and then cure the hep C afterward. 
The third point is um, that treatment uh, can help with liver decompensation. So now we're shifting from standard compensated cirrhosis to people that are clinically affected by their scarring that have decompensation. And, and this is a new point. This is something that, that we didn't used to say to do. But now um, treatment helps and treatment does improve decompensation. And I have that big word caution there because I want to explain this and nuance it a bit. So we're talking about people with cirrhosis who we used to tell you, once they start getting decompensated, don't do anything with treatment, send them to a hepatologist. What, I, what we hear a lot back is, yeah, well that's fine for you because you know their name and their, their office is right next to you. What if you're in a practice where that's just not that easy? Give us some practical advice about what to do with a person who's already decompensating and there's no way we're going to either get them a transplant or get them evaluated by a hepatologist. So let me walk through the data for that and the basis for the recommendations. First of all, th this is one of the first studies that was done. It's one of the only ones that's published where it took a large number of individuals who had cirrhosis before their transplant and gave them, they're either child B or child C, and they gave them uh, hepatitis C treatment. And this was, these were also phosphovir-based uh, studies uh, because at the time the alternative wasn't safe in liver uh, in people with decompensated liver disease. And then they also have a big arm after transplant. We're not so much interested in this because this is the domain of a hepatologist, right? Once you've gotten the, the transplant. Let's talk about the, these two arms up here and, and look at, and see what happened. When the individuals got their transplant, their, th these are their average, their change in their MELD scores, I'm sorry, not after their transplant, this is before their transplant, after their treatment, the change in the MELD. So this is improvement in MELD, this is a worsening of MELD, and all that you've done is giving hepatitis C treatment while waiting for the transplant. So you can see a lot of people's MELDs got better. And, um, and, and this, and, and then studies that have repeated this in multiple times, and several that were just presented two weeks ago at EASL have continued to find the same thing, including survival advantages out now a year and two years. So collectively, these data support the use of treatment in persons with decompensation uh, if it's early decompensation and, and or you have no chance in the world of ever getting a transplant on that person. As I look at the healthcare for the homeless uh, director from Baltimore and happen to say that. So that, that, those are data that matter. And the International Transplant Society has just published guidance on this and says, okay, we're gonna come out and actually give you a meld. And they say at a meld of 20 or less, go ahead and treat because the person's not going to end up getting a liver anyway. They're not bad enough. And their meld will in improve, and they're not, going, they're not going to need it. And so that's, that's the current advice. Um, they say with melds above 30, don't treat, for sure, because they're gonna get a liver pretty soon. You can cure them afterwards, and, and that you won't improve a meld above 30. And then the ones in between, it's individualized. Okay, so, so that's the, so the take-home point is um, obviously if you have a hepatologist, you can just keep doing what you've been doing, send them off if they're decompensated, uh, if their MELD is um, 
really anything above 16. But you can also now, if you don't have that option, feel confident trying to go ahead and treat, um, often using uh, a sulfosfagir-based uh, regimen uh, because those have uh, the most data. Okay, so let's, let's uh, go into the next case here. Which regimen is recommended for a patient with cirrhosis, genotype 1A, and a GFR of 15? So elbosphere gazopavir for 12 weeks, GP for 8, uh, lead soft for 12, or soft ribavirin for 24. So it's a patient with renal insufficiency, and now the question is how do you treat hep C with renal insufficiency? Okay, so the answers are um, uh, Elbosvir gazopavir times 12 uh, and uh, GP for 8, and we, have, we actually spread out pretty good here. Okay, so the, the main teaching point is that sofosbuvir has a breakdown product that is felt that accumulates in persons with renal insufficiency and has led to it uh, being sort of softly contraindicated. So you're not supposed to use sofosbuvir in persons with GFRs under 30. Think about it, it's, it, it's just very similar to tenofovir in that sort of recommendation, but for different reasons. So GFR under 30, you're not supposed to use sofosbuvir, and, and, that, and that simplifies. So you have two regimens that have been approved for use in renal insufficiency, and that's this one, the GP, and the other one is the elbovir elbosvir, gazopavir. And here the key is that this person has cirrhosis, and I already told you that you never use eight weeks, uh, you always use 12 with cirrhosis, so that makes this the preferred answer, as 56% of you identified. And if you don't know this, you just go up to that little tab and you slide down past decompensation, you'd click on renal impairment, and you'd see this answer. It comes from these two studies, quite simply, taking people, uh, you know, they, they, they had a PK arm, but the, the major study was uh, randomizing individuals to uh, grisopavir albosphere uh, for 12 weeks or placebo, and then they crossed them over, and there was very high uh, uh, sustained virologic response. Essentially, the drugs work great in this setting. And interestingly, they didn't have any issues with RAS testing, which is, if you know, with hep C is sometimes an issue with this regimen in genotype 1A. So there is no recommendation, unlike for persons uh, that don't have renal insufficiency, for RAS testing thought to be because of greater or of higher levels of the drugs in this context. The other is this. This is GP, uh, and GP being used in persons with renal insufficiency, mostly on dialysis in both these studies, there is a real thing. A lot of the renal insufficiency is, is people on, on dialysis, and they had nearly all of them uh, achieve a sustained virologic response with 12 weeks. Uh, actually, with the drugs used just in the same way as they are in persons that don't have renal failure. So GP, the indication is if you, you were going to do 12, go ahead and do 12. If you were going to do 8, do 8. Basically, just ignore the renal insufficiency. When do you treat in people with renal insufficiency? This is an interesting point because 
you, just as with liver failure, you can talk about how to treat, but then when to treat becomes critical. We don't have a meld issue here. What we do have is the fact that people die on dialysis. The dialysis is much more threatening to your patient than hepatitis C. It was like that thing before about the smoking uh, being much worse than that theoretical uh, issue with the ARVs. So um, knowing that, we oftentimes hold back treatment if someone's a transplant candidate in order to, at least in this part of the country, get them a transplant quicker because organs that have hep C in them can be given to hep C positive people uh, and there's a lot of organs with hep C in them for a fewer number of people uh, that need them. So that just works out. The math works better and it, it's the reason. That's the reason for it. One other uh, population to discuss that I'll do very quickly is the acute infection group because um, David got into this earlier with that CROI update. Um, you, to make it simple, it's a bit like the, the, um, the HIV situation. You just treat the same. You treat people with acute infection the same as if they didn't have acute infection. There are studies that show that shorter treatments work, but the guidance still says just treat the same because the studies were small and they're hard to disentangle whether there was the, the person was going to spontaneously uh, resolve the infection anyway. So for those kinds of reasons, the recommendation is to treat the same, but it probably can be shorter. And here's a, another CROI abstract, a different one than the one David showed with a different regimen, the Grisopavir Elvisvir, for eight weeks and very high success. So. You can treat the same. Uh, the question of whom to treat and when to treat comes into this one as well, this special population, as David said. Really, it's, it's you know, the, the recommendation is to wait, but for a lot of people that doesn't make sense because the person who's acutely infected is the one that's going to give the infection to another person because that's how they got it. And so the opportunity to prevent is greatest, but also the opportunity to be reinfected is highest. And so it becomes an individual sort of case-by-case case situation. The one thing I will say is the hepatitis C is never more life-threatening than their opioid problem because <laughs> that's what's going to kill them. Overdose is going to kill them in the short run, not hep C. So all efforts should be intensified for our next lecture, um, not the acute hep C. But there is absolutely no reason not to go ahead and treat when you can. And the two-log rule has worked for years. If, it's, if the virus isn't coming down after a couple weeks, it's not going to. Um, and there's no reason to continue to wait. I just wanted to draw your attention to another special population, which is pregnant women. Because of the opioid epidemic, there's more and more women at, uh, during childbearing ages who are acquiring and carrying hepatitis C and at risk of spreading it uh, to their uh, infants. And so it's, it's currently estimated by the CDC that approximately 1,700 infants will be born with HCV infection each year and contribute to the rising incidence of Hep C around the country. I'll take one minute to just tell you that with, the, um, with hepatitis C in pregnant women, there is no, there is nothing to do differently during pregnancy we have no reasons. We don't change anything. In the, um, we don't do C-sections. We don't with, uh, withhold breastfeeding. So that there's no special advantage of knowing that the 
the woman uh, has hep C, uh, but the practice is to be more alert to uh, curing the woman after, the, after pregnancy and to screening the child um, for hepatitis C infection after, um, and, and the recommendation because of maternal transfer of antibodies is to do either RNA testing in the first year or waiting until 18 months or beyond to look for antibodies to hepatitis C in the infant. Yeah, and the final special population, which is kind of becoming more and more important to me um, uh, personally, is the age. And I'm just going to say that there are more and more data on uh, treatment of hepatitis C in people above 65, and the, the drugs work great. There's been no special signals for uh, safety, and um, it, it's worth knowing that because sometimes you have your 72-year-old who you're wondering whether to treat. And it goes back to the rule of thumb. If they're going to live for at least a year, there's no reason they should have to live longer than that with hepatitis C. Just go ahead and cure them. So my uh, points today were to start out with staging. You have to stage every hep C infected person. The goals are to get drug approvals and to find the cirrhotics. We talked a little bit about each of the special populations and how treatment might change. With the co-infected one, it's just the drug interactions. With liver, with liver cirrhosis, it's a bit on the duration, but once decompensated, there's new accumulating evidence that treatment can be effective, actually um, prolonging life and improving uh, the decompensation uh, signals. Uh, and with renal disease, it's the elbosphere, grisopavir, and the uh, glucoposphere, prevenosphere, the GP uh, uh, regimens that are approved for use uh, with renal insufficiency. And finally, be uh, sensitive to the issues with pregnancy and no differences uh, in treatment of the elderly. So thanks very much for your attention, and I'm happy to. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Dave, for a great talk. And I think uh, what Dave didn't say is that uh, the guideline and the format of it is really something that he created with Mike Sag, uh, Donna, uh, and a few other people, and uh, I think that's really been a great con contribution, particularly because it's, it's updated in real time. You know, one of the issues, uh, Dave, is uh, why some people fail their initial therapy with a drug that's acting against the virus, not against, uh, not through host mechanisms like uh, interferon. Is that all due to primary drug resistance, or are there other issues? Great, great question. So there, um, the few people that do fail, and, and in some instances, in some studies, there's none that fail virologically. Um, but there have been some that do, and it's been difficult to find um, viral factors like resistance-associated mutations that you could have said, ah, we know why this person failed. In some cases, that's been possible, in others not. The very boring business of just not taking the medicines is certainly contributes to some people uh, failing. And what's really fascinating about that point is the, the tolerability these regimens have for non-adherence. Uh, Self-reported non-adherence rates like under 70% have not been shown to affect SVR in some studies. It's, you get away with a lot probably because the doses are high above what um, is necessary and also because we, we may treat a little bit longer than we need to, uh, and that might mask um, some of the uh, non-adherence. 
this one says, what about the MSM uh, ATV situation? Uh, yeah, a, a clear, um, clearly important issue. Uh, high rates of Hep C among HIV positive MSMs all over the world, um, strongly linked to um, risk uh, disinhibition at, at parties where multiple people are using recreational drugs and then having uh, very high risk sex. Uh, and those are major threats to Hep C elimination. Uh, and in the study that David showed earlier today, from uh, Swiss uh, and in the, the Netherlands, it's already evident that the, their great efforts in eliminating Hep C from their HIV-positive populations are already starting to be threatened by uh, reinfections uh, for those exact same reasons. In patients with uh, F3-4 cirrhosis, do you refer to a hepatologist after successful treatment? You know, it's interesting, because you can cure almost everyone, the focus is now a lot on what, what about after cure? What, what's the next thing after cure? And it turns out that post-SVR, um, the, the individuals with, and I should have made this point more clearly, with F3 or F4 continue to need to be, uh, have ultrasounds for hepatocellular uh, carcinoma surveillance. So when you get cured, your risk of getting those goes down by about 81%. But the 19% that, but you can still get liver cancer. And so for that reason, it's recommended to continue to do that surveillance. And right now it's, it's recommended indefinitely. And so, you know, you don't need to refer them to a hepatologist to do that. In fact, I actually sometimes try to push them back to the primary care provider just to save the person an extra visit because all I'm doing is looking at the ultrasound every six months. And so if I can get the primary to accept that role, then the person doesn't need to come see the hepatitis provider anymore after the cure. The um, ability to stop doing that is a subject of great debate. And, um, and I'll just say, you know, stay tuned. It's not, you, you still have to keep doing it right now. Are you concerned about the eight-week regimens in patients who, um, uh, at least in the past, uh, had a higher risk of fail failure like African-Americans? Are there patients you don't use eight-week regimens in? So the, there, for initial treatment, not retreatment, but initial treatment of, um, of hepatitis C, well, first of all, I need to, to be really careful here. I think the question's asking about eight weeks of lidipasvir and sofosbuvir for individuals with viral loads less than six million. Okay, so that, they got that indication um, and you can do that. Um, there are, um, most of those individuals were, were women and, and there were very few in that look back post hoc analysis. And so people have challenged that and said, look, what if it's an African American? What if it's, um, uh, someone who has cirrhosis? What if there's other unfavorable, uh, a man, other unfavorable characteristics? And in the truth is, is that a lot of people with cirrhotics, with African Americans, are less likely to do the eight weeks. But in real world analyses from the United States and Germany, it still seems to be working fine, underscoring that you might not need that last four weeks. However, I just want to say, with GP with gl glucosphere preventosphere, 
eight weeks is the usual initial treatment course, unless you have cirrhosis. So it's, it's not all about eight weeks, it's about each, each of those regimens, because the usual, the typical course is eight weeks with GT. So when do you order uh, HCV resistance testing? Another great question. So uh, resistance testing is, um, is currently necessary if you're going to use the Elbisvir, Grisopavir regimen and you have a genotype 1A patient um, with the initial treatment. So, and, and, and that's, it sounds very niche, but that's just because there is a high rate of treatment failure if you have pre-existing um, resistance-associated amino acids in 1A patients getting that regimen. But none of the other regimens and none of the other genotypes, uh, oh, sorry, except for genotype 3, where we also, um, uh, some, some, but not all people will do uh, resistance-associated uh, variant testing. So the answer is, for initial treatment, it's uncommon that you need it. Um, but unless you're, you know that the insurance company is going to require that one regimen. And, and that can honestly be a little bit frustrating in the clinic because, y you know, you have to order the test, right? And you don't know yet what the insurance situation is and you know what they're going to get, you know, w w what they're going to be made to take. And I've found that I've had to go and start looking at the insurance during my, you know, you're doing your, your pre-screening of your patient and one of the checklist things is checking the insurance company's formulary to see if I have to order the resistance test, um, you know, which just seems like what kind of world are we living in. But anyway, that's, that, that's, that's what I do. The, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the um, uh, issues of uh, treating HCV during pregnancy. Is there any uh, reason during breastfeeding to uh, initiate therapy or do you wait until after? Well, breastfeeding is, is um, I think a lot of people, because of the lack of data, would wait until afterwards. Um, it, you know, there's, there's rarely a rush to, to, to get in there and uh, treat hep C and there's no um, contraindication to breastfeeding, so I think most people would wait until afterwards because we don't have that much data on the levels of the, um, the drugs in the breast milk. Uh, this is a question about the, can patients who have renal failure be a candidate for a liver transplant if they have hepatitis C? So yes, um, in fact, we love it when, um, uh, when a patient has renal failure and gets a transplant, you treat them just the same as if they didn't that because their GFR goes back up into the you know, normal range and you just give them whatever hep C regimen you want to give them. They're great patients, actually. You have to worry a bit about drug interactions, but with many of these, it's not a problem. With um, treatment of hep C positive persons before, you have to make sure you don't treat them and then lower them on the list. That's, that's what I was trying to say earlier. You, if you cure them, then it makes it harder sometimes for them to get a renal transplant. Now, we in uh, Penn and Mass General and a couple other places are doing positive hep C organs into negative hep C recipients. And, um, and we're doing that now because you're going to die on dialysis, not from hep C. Like, it's just not, like, no, no doctor would ever, like, 
take that tray, we would all happily take a hep C positive organ to get off dialysis. And so why shouldn't the patients get that? So what, what's happening is either PrEP or immediate post-infection treatment of hep C right at the time of uh, what the Hopkins group does is give, we actually give the treatment right as you're going, um, you know, uh, right, right as you're going to the transplant unit to prevent, right, right, right as you're going to surgery to prevent the infection. Others wait uh, and monitor for hep C infection, which always happens. I'm not going to, I'm not biased here, but, uh, and then, tr and then treat. Um, and, and in fairness, before we had pan, pangenotypic regimens that were safe in renal insufficiency, that other approach made, made more sense than it does right now. Okay, Dave, thanks very much for a, a great discussion.